0: Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Friday, October 29, 2010. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Stephen B. Leader, PhD lead author of an article published in the July issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled Dysphagia Testing and Aspiration Status in Medically Stable Infants Requiring Mechanical Ventilation via Tracheotomy. Dr. Leder is a professor of surgery in the section of otolaryngology at Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine 2010, Volume 11, number 4, pages 484 to 487. Thank you for being here, Dr. Leader.
2: Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to chatting.
1: Would you start off by telling us uh, what led you to do this study?
2: Absolutely. Um, I've been doing clinical research here at Yale for over 20 years, and I enjoy asking questions that that are directly related to patient care. See, I have a large and heterogeneous caseload, as um, when I'm here, I do all the instrumental swallowing testing with either video fluoroscopy or fiber optic endoscopy um, at Yale New Haven Hospital, which is a large 900-bed teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University School of Medicine. So back in 2002, I published a study in CHEST on dysphagia testing in adults who are tracheotomized and mechanically ventilated and a literature search revealed that there was no companion literature for the um, pediatric population. But I'm frequently present in the pediatric intensive care unit, in the neonatal unit, and the pediatric respiratory care units here, and it led me to ask the question of whether these infants who are tracheotomized and ventilator-dependent can also swallow, as the adults did while they're on the um, trach and vent. So I talked to the pediatric respiratory physicians and the intensivists who take care of these little infants, and we decided that it would be um, an opportunity to do some dysphagia testing once the infant was medically stable. And there was nothing in the literature, but we came up with the two criteria of stable vent settings for 7 to 14 days, even in the presence of ongoing tachypnea, because all the kids have chronic lung disease, uh, and with a respiratory rate less than or equal to 40 to 50 breaths per minute. So if the child met those criteria and they were doing well, the goal would be to do a swallowing test because of two things. Early oral alimentation is great for family and all the caregivers want these kids to eat. And also, it could potentially down the road decrease their oral aversions. So that's why I was interested in doing the study.
1: So can you give us an overview of what you did in this study and what your findings were?
2: Sure. We found uh, 14 infants that met the criteria for uh, inclusion in the study. They were all tracheotomized. They all were mechanically ventilated. Their mean chronological age was 8.1 months, and they ranged from 3 to 14 months. But importantly, their gestational age was 28.4 weeks, and they ranged from 24 to 39 weeks. And what we did was, for the first five out of six infants, they had two different swallowing tests performed. They had a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, and they also had a video fluoroscopic evaluation of swallowing. And we found that the two tests gave the exact same results, but the video fluoroscopy was tolerated better by the child. They invariably cried when the endoscope was placed in their nose, and it affected how they would participate in the swallowing. They were less cooperative and a little less reliable in their taking food. So we changed for the last eight subjects, and we only did video fluoroscopy. And what we found was that eight infants... Exhibited a nice coordinated suck swallow reflex, and they swallowed just fine. And six infants exhibited just an oral dysphagia, which is not unusual. These children have never eaten. Some of them didn't suck on their binky or their pacifier very well. So it was not surprising that they would exhibit some oral phase dysphagia. And what we did was we would gently squeeze the bottle nipple and express two to three or four cc's of the barium into the child's mouth to stimulate the suck and also have them some kind of bolus for them to swallow. And uh, the results were uh, very gratifying and quite surprising because 13 of the 14 infants, 93%, demonstrated a successful pharyngeal swallow with no evidence of aspiration whatsoever. And all of them were started successfully uh, transitioning to an oral diet. So the take-home message is that, is that objective dysphagia testing is recommended for these very premature infants who are ventilator-dependent via a tracheotomy, and the prevalence of aspiration is low, and a negative exam can promote safe and timely oral alimentation and make both the caregivers and family very happy.
1: Now, I noticed in the, in the paper that some of these, and you mentioned some of these infants had been ventilated for many months. How did you decide when you were going to do the swallowing evaluation?
2: You know, it just depended on when the uh, pediatric respiratory physician or the intensivist decided that the patient was stable enough because they had no change in the event settings for 7 to 14 days, they were not breathing too erratically although they were still tachypneic, and that they could be transported down to the fluoroscopy suite. It's not an easy task bringing these children down. The respiratory therapist has to come down. The nurse has to come down. Sometimes the um, resident comes down to make sure that they remain stable when they're down in fluoroscopy. They have to be transferred from their uh, crib to a fluoroscopy chair, which is a tumble forms chair. They have to be positioned correctly. All the vent hoses have to be supported. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a big production, but it certainly is worth the effort because the vast majority of these children swallow successfully.
1: So assuming that they do pass the swallowing test, how do you transition these babies to oral feeding?
2: Oh, That's a very good question. So as, as I said before, these children have never eaten in their life, so they don't really know that sucking on a nipple will translate into a full stomach. So they've only been fed through their, either their uh, percutaneous gastrostomy or their nasogastric tube and get satiation that way. So we start trialing, when they're hungry, oral feeding first, always hu- when they're the hungriest. So we'll give them either a breast or a bottle, and we'll stimulate them, by moving the nipple around in their mouth, stroking the underside of their chin, and if they don't have a good vigorous suck, we will even express a little of milk or Pediasure into their mouth by squeezing the bottle to get them started. And it takes, uh, some kids do uh, faster, but some kids take later, so it could take up to a week or two before they start to take any appreciable amount of oral alimentation. When they start to take some more oral alimentation, you can decrease their tube feeds uh, according to their oral intake. But it's not a very quick process because, as I said, these kids had never eaten, and uh, they just need to be, they need to be trained to uh, take a bottle orally.
1: And the one baby that didn't pass the test, you kept that baby on the tube yes, feeds? Yes, the one
2: baby that didn't pass the test uh, exhibited some aspiration. And um, we want to make sure that because they all have chronic lung disease, that no child who aspirated, even if it was inconsistently aspirated, to exacerbate their lung uh, issue would get any um, oral diet until they came down maybe for a second or a third test every two, four weeks, if they were still in the hospital, for further testing. So we just were very conservative to make sure that they were um, all uh, swallowing successfully.
1: It's interesting uh, in your paper, that you noted that the presence of an orogastric or nasogastric tube was not associated with aspiration. So do you routinely leave these tubes in for the swallowing study?
2: Oh, yes, we sure do. I uh, published a large-scale population study in Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in 2008. The total population sample was 1,260 adults. 630 had a nasogastric tube and 630 did not have a nasogastric tube. And we did fiber optic swallowing evaluations on all of these patients. And we found that there was no difference in aspiration status regarding either liquid or puree foods dependent upon presence or absence of a nasogastric tube. So I always leave uh, a nasogastric tube in, or an oral gastric tube in place to supplement oral feedings. It has no role... And a no impact on swallowing success. And I was very gratified to find that this translates into the infant population as well. So, in answer to your question, based on some hard evidence, we will leave a nasogastric tube in place while the child is taking oral alimentation.
1: Interesting. Uh, most of these patients that you studied, in fact, probably almost all of them, were ex-premies, and most of them had bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Do you think that your testing and findings are potentially applicable to older children who are chronically ventilated for other reasons?
2: Oh, yes. I think that if a, if an older child is uh, chronically ventilated for, for whatever reason, it could be a trauma, it could be um, a neurosurgical procedure, if they stabilize and the uh, attending physician that's taking care of them feels that they are are, are ready to have a swallowing test, then no matter what their etiology is, they should participate and have an objective swallowing evaluation. Now, if they're older, if they're 8 or 9 or 10, then we can do, and we often do it, a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation right at bedside in the intensive care unit. The family is there. They can watch the video screen and see the the whole larynx and pharynx and watch the food go down. The patient doesn't have to be transported to um, radiology, doesn't get radiated, and we can use regular food. So any child who is mechanically ventilated and trached for whatever reason and becomes stable can have a formal swallowing evaluation.
1: I think you've sort of talked about it a little bit in your comments, but would you compare the advantages and disadvantages of the two swallowing tests for us?
2: Sure. Um, Video fluoroscopic swallowing has been around a lot longer than fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. Video fluoroscopy has probably been around since the 60s, whereas fiber optic endoscopy for swallowing was first published in 1988. They are both mature techniques at the present time, and they're complementary. They are not mutually exclusive. Both have advantages and both have disadvantages. Video fluoroscopy is done in the radiology suite. It requires transport down there. It requires the presence of a radiology tech, a radiologist, sometimes a nurse to monitor the patient, and the speech-language pathologist. It uses barium-impregnated food which is a little off-putting to some people. Obviously, you have to have radiation exposure, and most of the time it's done in the lateral plane, so you get only a two-dimensional view of the swallow. The pluses for video fluoroscopy are you can see the entire swallow from the lips all the way into the esophagus, and you can make your dietary management plans from there. fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing is done at bedside, uses regular food, or the favorite food for the person, has no time limit because there's no radiation exposure, and usually just requires the presence of the speech-language mythologist who does the testing. A nurse can help feed the patient, or a family member can be present to help feed the patient. It gives a superior view, I don't mean better, I mean a superior view of the pharynx and the larynx and you can see both vocal folds, both piriform sinuses, the entire base of tongue and epiglottis. And the only drawback is that the optical tip of the scope gets obscured when the swallow occurs. It's called a whiteout period. It's only milliseconds, but you cannot see exactly what happens at the time of the swallow. So you can see everything before and everything immediately after the swallow. You just can't see the exact moment of swallowing because the optical tip is um, obliterated. But it's not a big deal. An experienced endoscopist can infer that something happened in between. For instance, if there's no aspiration before and then there's aspiration after, well then you can infer that it occurred during. But most aspiration occurs after the swallow from excessive spillage and residue. So it doesn't significantly impair the recommendations based on fiber optics. So if the patient has nasal trauma, you can't pass the scope, so they would need video fluoroscopy. If the patient is a very difficult transport, uh, for instance, if they have some broken limbs and they have to be in traction, then you do fiber optics. So they are complementary tests, and they should be used on an individual basis. And I would say that here at Yale... I probably do 90% fiber optic and approximately 10% video fluoroscopic evaluations.
1: I would imagine the parents of these uh, babies that you studied were quite happy to be able to begin feeding their babies.
2: Absolutely. You know, all these mothers and fathers want to do is, number one, take their child home, and number two, feed them like every other child eats by mouth. And if you can give them that ladder that they can feed them they can hold them they can start to feed them it creates a better caregiver bond it's uh it's a big deal because these kids just never ate for their whole life and i'm sure that the first day that that child eats that parent has told everybody in their family and friends that their, their child has eaten that day and everybody as well as the caregivers are very very pleased
1: i imagine that's true Uh, Do you have any closing comments?
2: Well, I'd just like to say thank you very much for having me. And also, I want the listeners to remember that swallowing is a very robust brainstem-mediated reflex. And when the patient, whether they be an infant, a child, an adolescent, or an adult, is stable and ready to be tested, it should be done as soon as possible it's always surprising to me that if I read the chart, talk to the physicians, meet the patient, I say, this person's never going to swallow. I do the test, and they swallow terrifically. So it's such a robust reflex that you can't assume in any shape or form that the person just won't pass. You have to do the test. It takes five minutes, and the gains much Outweigh any negativity that a failed test would entail.
1: So, are the uh, folks at Yale testing these babies earlier as the result of your study?
2: I don't think they're testing them earlier, but I think they have a greater awareness that when they're stable, they won't be. They they will be more aggressive in sending them down for a a, a video fluoroscopy and not wait. So, I I guess in, in retrospect, your question is right. They based upon the data that we've presented, they will err on the side of doing the test earlier rather than wait a week or 10 days to do it later. So yes, I hope so.
1: Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Dr. Leader.
2: You're very welcome.
1: We have been talking today with Dr. Stephen B. Leader from Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, about the study... Dysphagia Testing and Aspiration Status in Medically Stable Infants Requiring Mechanical Ventilation via Tracheotomy, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in July 2010. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org/icriticalcare for more information. For the iCritical Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker.
0: Join nearly six thousand of your colleagues from around the world in sunny San Diego, California, USA, January 15th to 19th, 2011, for SCCM's 40th Critical Care Congress. Celebrate SCCM's contributions to critical care medicine over the past 40 years and take part in shaping the future of the society and your profession. Congress showcases the most groundbreaking developments and research in critical care medicine through a variety of educational opportunities, including hands-on workshops, captivating symposia, compelling sessions, and popular poster presentations. Visit www.sccm.org. Congress for more information or to register or ask to speak to a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM. Guest Podcast Editor for Pediatrics. Dr. Parker is Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at or info at s CCM.org.